And turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. We're going to be in Matthew 6 this morning, and we'll be looking specifically at verses uh, 25 through 33. As you may recall, hopefully you recall, we haven't talked about it a whole lot since the first Sunday in January, that our session chose Matthew 6, 33 as our verse of the year for 2016. And so what we're looking at this morning is effectively that verse. We're going to spend some time on our verse of the year. This is a relatively familiar passage uh, from the Sermon on the Mount, sort of culminating in what is the crescendo of verse 33. And so I want us to be careful. Uh, I want us to, I really want us to guard against familiarity. Uh, You see, the curse of familiarity is that we lack appreciation. Familiarity almost inevitably leads to complacency. And so I want to guard against that. And we need to resist the temptation within our hearts to fall into the comfortable trap of believing that we already know it. Of believing for even just a moment uh, that this, well, this can't be for us because we've heard it before. We need to forget that idea very quickly. Surely this message is for someone else. We, we need to humble our hearts. We need to work very hard this morning to humble our hearts. We need to approach the Word of God by faith, by that confident expectation that God not only has spoken in the past, but that He will, in fact, speak into the present this morning. We need to believe that. and We need to hope for that. We need to trust in that. We need to trust that in this moment, God will speak through His Word. And we need to beg Him for the grace of ears to hear. Otherwise, otherwise, what in the world are we doing here? And so let's look at this together. It's at these words of our Lord Jesus Christ, let's look at Him as a child might look to their father with expectations, with confidence. We need to do that. We need to yearn for him to speak. So let's let's do that together. Look at Matthew chapter 6. We'll begin in verse 25. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are always in need of your help. And we're desperately in need of it now. So what I would ask is that you would give us the grace, give us the mercy, give us the gift of ears to hear your word this morning. God, open up our blind eyes. Awaken our souls that we might hear from you, as you are surely speaking. 
God, don't let me stand in the way of what you would do today. I pray that you would move me and all my failings, all my weaknesses. I pray that you would move all that aside and that you would speak here this morning. I pray that you will do that. I beg of that. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, sometimes I wonder uh, what it would have been like to be there on the side of the mountain that day. I wonder what it would have been like to hear Jesus speaking these words. I imagine sitting there. Can you do that? Can you just imagine being there for a minute on the side of that hill with that crowd of disciples, those people who had gathered there around him, listening to him teach, observing him, observing how he carried himself, hearing uh, the inflection in his voice, the subtle rise and fall as our Savior spoke these very words. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. You hear sort of a fatherly tone in the words of our true elder brother in this passage. Because in this moment, in this verse, Matthew 6.33, this verse that R.C. Sproul says may be the most important verse in the entire Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is telling his people not to worry about the temporal things of this world. Don't worry, he says. Don't be anxious. Don't be anxious about what you will wear. Don't be anxious about the food you will eat. Don't be anxious about what you will drink. You, do you see what he's doing here? He's starting small. That's what he's doing. He's starting with the basic. He's starting with the fundamental needs of all people. And driving home the point, he even goes so far as he points out over the hill. Again, be there for just a second and imagine this. He points out over the hill. And directs their eyes to the birds of the air. Look at that in verse 26. He says, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap. Okay, so they don't plant, they don't harvest, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. And then Jesus asks a diagnostic question. And he does this from time to time. He asks asks this rhetorical question in order to probe the hearts of of his listeners. Okay, so after directing their eyes to the heavens maybe even to a couple of sparrows flying overhead. And reminding the people of God's provision for his creatures, he asks this, he says this, are you not of more value than they? Okay, so not only is he starting small in, in, the, in, the thing, in this thing by addressing their basic needs, he maintains that line by pointing out something so small as the birds. Okay, he's, he's very intentional. His words are so consistent because he is leading them somewhere. He's taking them on a path somewhere, and he's he's enticing them to follow him. Remember now, we still need to be there, though. We need to be on the side of that hill. He's using a carnal lesson here. We need to be there with him as much as we can. Look at the birds of the air. See them. You know they're small. You know they're insignificant. You know that... And you know that God has given you, as his image bearers, as those created in his own image and and knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, he's given you dominion over them. And then he asks, are you not of more value than they? And so we are forced, both them on the hill and us today, are forced, forced to come to terms with whether or not we really believe that. Do we believe that we are of more value than the birds of the air. Do you believe that your father, did you catch that language in there in verse 26? Did you see that? Notice that Jesus doesn't call God the father of the birds. 
I mean, of course he's their creator, right? And he is obviously their sustainer. That's the whole reason that Jesus is pointing to them even now. He's talking about God's provision for them. But Jesus does not call the birds his children. He doesn't. He says, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. That's not an accident. Jesus is making a point. He doesn't say, and yet their heavenly Father feeds them. He doesn't do that because it's not true. And because the birds were never the point anyway. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, God is our Father. And if our Father takes this great care of the birds to whom he is related only in his general providence, how much greater of necessity must be his care for us? That's why he ultimately asked the people that diagnostic question. Are you not of more value than they? You see, here in the observable world, we have a testimony of God's care, of our Father's care for lesser things. Even the birds of the air receive the benefit of God's provision and his sustenance. Remember that. Remember that because we are prone to forgetfulness. And I know every time somebody sees a rainbow, they think, yeah, that means God's never going to flood the world again. And the rainbow gets a lot of credit because it only shows up every once in a while. But every time you see a bird, the challenge should be to remember that God provides for them too. So every pathetic little parakeet flying around in your backyard is a reminder of God's provision in your life. Jesus is not very subtle with them here. He's not. We need to remember that. But Jesus isn't through yet. He's talked about the birds, but he's not ready to concede that we are quite with him on this point. And he is so concerned that we understand this, he draws their gaze back from the sky, back from the heavens, and brings them down back to the ground. And he changes the point of concern. He moves from physical sustenance to physical protection. Look back at verse 28. In verse 28, he says this, And why are you anxious about clothing? Okay, so he's changing the object. He's changing the object of our worry and our anxiety, but he's not really amplifying the object here. It's still a basic. It's a very primal, fundamental need of humanity. And then he says this, And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Okay, so while the object of clothing is of no greater primal need than food and drink, the directive that Jesus gives us is amplified quite a bit beyond simply looking at, beyond just seeing the birds of the field. He tells us to consider the lilies of the field. He wants them to dwell on this idea for a moment. So let's do that. Let's be faithful here. We can, we can read of the greatness and the glory of King Solomon, right? We're told in 1 Kings 4 of his great wealth. It even goes so far as to describe the daily provisions that were, that were needed to sustain his expansive court. He was into what we would call, we don't use this word a lot, but he was in what we would call succulents, all right? He didn't skimp on quantity, and he never settled for lesser quality. In 1 Kings 7, we read of the palace and the ridiculous furnishings that were fitted with costly stones of highest quality. This is the guy who literally sat in a gold throne with rubies and diamonds around it. Solomon played by different rules than we do. So have no doubt, Solomon was well appointed. And yet Jesus tells his people that compared to one of the lilies of the field, Compared to just a flower, 
that even Solomon in all his glory, and it was substantial, was not arrayed like one of these. Think about that for just a second. Let's, let's practice obedience here and consider the lilies for just a moment. Um, I was working on this passage while in New York a couple of weeks ago with our college group uh, on a mission trip. And so being that it was a missions trip, uh, we, we, quarters were tight. We were, we were staying in a, in, a, in a beautiful hotel in Queens called the La Quinta. And... Uh, It's like the worst La Quinta on the, on the planet, too. I mean, anybody tell you there's like a way nicer one? We just don't tell the kids about that. Um, this is the cheap one, right? So this is where we stand. So we're there. I'm, I'm sharing a room with a couple of grown men. So it's pretty tight quarters, right? Um, one of our guys, a bit of a diva, had a pretty big bag there filled with all his stuff, but we love him anyway. And, and, uh, and so every surface in the entire room is just covered in junk. I mean, that's where, right? Because why clean it up? Um, freedom. And so we, we didn't do that for the week. And so I'm, I am there one evening. I'd, I'd come back early from Manhattan, which was great, because once you've seen that, it's, it's there, and you don't have to see it all the time. And so we, I come back, and I find a little niche in the room, which was the corner of uh, my bed. My, my wife would have been furious with me for sitting on the comforter in this hotel, but I did it anyway, because I'm a rebel. And so I'm sitting there with my, uh, I've got my computer, and I've got some books scattered around. I don't know why I'm stepping out for y'all to get this visual, but um, I, I, I was there doing that, and so I've got my books and notes and stuff like that sitting around, and, uh, and one of my roommates walks in the door, and, uh, hey, what are you doing? Yeah, I'm just working here on this passage, and he looks at my computer screen, and on my computer screen, it's, it's just covered in pictures of flowers, And so I see that look on his face go from curiosity to concern, right? <laughs> so he's, at this moment, I've got some explaining to do, but I want to kind of play it out and see how it goes, because why not? And um, so we're there, and, and so I, I had never Googled lilies before. I, I don't... But there it was, and now I'm, I'm exposed, man, just... I see that look wash across his face. And so I, I have a real desire in that moment to calm his spirit because um, we have to sleep together that night. And so um, <laughs> <we're>, <laughs> I explained that I was working my way through this passage. I went so far as to read it to him so he wouldn't think I was making it up. And, and, and bless his heart, he helped, heard me out. And, and I said how Jesus, how our King, how our Lord and Savior tells us to consider the lilies of the field and how I had never done that. I had never considered the lilies of the field. And here's what I learned in that process. I learned that the lilies of the field are profoundly beautiful. I, I, I don't want to be overly... We do the white lilies at Easter and those are pretty. Those are the most basic lily you can find. Um, God's creativity is expressed remarkably in the lilies of the field. Each one has a singular distinctiveness that is almost impossible to fully take in. And by all accounts and all reasonable interpretations of this passage, Jesus is, is pointing to them on the side of the hill, not because they're so amazing, but because they're so common. 
He's not pointing at them to get their awe and to, to be in shock over how beautiful they are. He's pointing at them and saying, well, here's what he says. Remember, these are the things that today are alive and tomorrow are thrown into the oven. Today are alive and tomorrow are thrown into the oven. These things that are used to heat the oven in order to prepare a meal, even these things, these basic things, are more splendid, more glorious even than Solomon in all his glory. These things that are short-lived, perhaps never even seen by a human eye, God puts such detail into them. They are dressed in such a way that even the highest of human achievement cannot touch them. Again, Lloyd-Jones says of the lilies, he says, they are here today with their exquisite beauty and all their perfection, but it is all gone by tomorrow. These beautiful things come and go, and that is the end of them. That is the lily life. They are short-lived. They are vulnerable. They are fleeting. A scorching sun, a week in South Carolina without rain, or even my two-year-old child with a stick are all capable of completely undoing them in just a moment. And yet, God puts such detail in them, in each one of them, that they stand as a jewel of his grand design above and beyond anything built by human hands. And Jesus says to them pointedly here, driving the point home like a loving parent with a doubting child, he says this, this is, but if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? If God meets the primal needs of these created things, how can you doubt that God would not meet the primal, the the basic needs of his own image bearers? How could we doubt that? The end of verse 30 brings the indictment, but it's not a universal indictment. And we need to be careful here because this passage is not being addressed to all of the world. Here he says, and again, don't miss the particular significance of these five words. Here's what he says, end of verse 30. Oh, you of little faith. <laughs> so it's not you who are without faith. It's not you who have no faith. It's you who have faith, but it's a deficient faith. It's a little faith. It's a def- deficient faith in a follower of Christ that leads to what I would call misguided affections. Because we fail to believe that God truly loves us. Because we fail to believe that God has, both has provided and will continue to provide for us. Because we are so prone to putting ourselves in the center of the universe and seeing our temporal needs as if they were eternal needs, we are called you of little faith. And in the end, when we become the objects of primary importance, when our own well-being becomes the pinnacle goal of our lives, we track over into the lane of comfort and security, and we demonstrate a lack of faith in God's sovereign will for our lives. Misguided affections lead to doubt when troubles surround us. Misguided affections lead to anger when we don't get our way in our own time. Misguided affections lead to pain when others don't feel the same about us as we feel about ourselves. Misguided affections lead to selfishness, Misguided affections are what lead to elitism, racism, and classism. Misguided affections lead us down the path of personal welfare without regard for what it might cost those around us. Misguided affections reveal a level of pride that we are always blind to in ourselves 
but always capable in seeing in others. And they reveal a lack of love for others because we inevitably fail to do unto others as we would have them do unto us. Misguided affections cause us to demonstrate both in word and in deed that our primary concern is for our own wealth and for our own protection. So one of the things that this passage has caused me to do, um, and so I'm going to invite you into that now, is to ask myself, like to honestly ask myself, to look at my life, to take inventory, and ask if I have in my life any misguided affections. And so I, I started... I started asking myself some diagnostic questions. Um, so here they are. How do I react when I don't get my way in life? When things are difficult, and maybe it's just one of those seasons of life, or maybe just one of those days, how do I treat my wife, my kids, my coworkers? How do I react when I am sick? Uh, here's one. Would a review of my bank account reveal a first priority of myself and my personal status or a first priority of God and his kingdom? I'm not going to make eye contact with anybody. Not... Here's another one. Would a glance at my weekly calendar reveal a commitment to the cause of the advancement or the go- of the gospel? Or would it reveal a commitment to my football team, my child's sports program, or my own career advancement? When I am in a moment of personal crisis or even some form of corporate crisis, do I respond in a way that reflects the grace that I've been shown or in a way that assumes that I deserve better? Here's the last one. Do I face the things that happen to me in this world in a way that is different from the world around me? And, if so, would the world around me testify to that being the case? You see, where Jesus is leading us in this passage is to come to terms with the fact that our anxiety, that our worry, demonstrates that we have a temporal outlook, even though we are eternal creatures. The birds of the air, the lilies of the field, these are temporal things. They are fleeting things. Yet even the sparrow, remember Matthew chapter 10? We haven't gotten there yet, but remember Matthew 10, 29 is going to tell us that two sparrows are sold for but a penny. That means they're cheap. They are not prized. They are not highly valued. They're cheap. But then he says, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. Okay, so even these seemingly insignificant creatures are held fast and secure in the almighty hands of the living God in such a way that not one of them, not one can fall from the sky apart from the will of our Lord. Luke 12, 6 is going to say of the sparrows that Not one of them is forgotten before God. He knows them all, just like he knows the starry host by name. That's our God. And we're getting to the same point that Jesus makes in Luke chapter 12, where after saying that even the hairs of your head are all numbered, he says of the unforgotten birds, fear not, fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. And so now, having made this two-pronged, argument against anxiety and worry, he makes this statement. Look at verses 31 and 32. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Okay, so look 
at the birds of the air. Look, consider the lilies. One of the great, uh, one of the great reformed treasures that we have as a reference is the Westminster Shorter Catechism. On the question regarding the decrees of God, the answer to question seven says this. It says, The decrees of God are his eternal purpose according to the counsel of his will, whereby for his own glory he has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. That means that God is never surprised. It means that you have never and will never surprise God for even a moment. Now, that's not to say that we don't disappoint him, and I want to be clear there. Um, We certainly disappoint God. But you have never surprised him. Not once. You've never snuck up on him and found him unprepared. Okay? So then the next question, number eight asks, how does God execute his decrees? And the answer to that question is that God executes his decrees in the works of creation and providence. So not only does he make it all, he also orchestrates it all. Not only does he write the symphony, he provides the sound that it might be heard. But to what purpose? Why does he do this? You see, the purpose, the why behind all of it is left there for us in the answer to the first question. It's all for his own glory. That's why he has foreordained everything whatsoever comes to pass. And so ultimately the birds... And ultimately, the lilies and everything else in all of creation exists for one singular, one uniform purpose. It is all, we are all, for his glory. Worry and anxiety, forget that. Worry and anxiety miss the mark because in them, we fail to live up to our divine purpose. And instead of pointing outwardly from ourselves to our maker, Our gaze, our eyes are now so inwardly directed that we look, well, we look just like the Gentile, just like the unbeliever who seek after all these things and the world notices. Jesus is making a a not-so-subtle statement about the fallen world here. You see, they chase after all these things. They run after all these things. They pursue them. They seek first all these things. Their primary purpose, the world's primary purpose apart from Christ, is for themselves. Again, Sproul makes the point that no unbeliever seeks after God. No one. After all, how can what is dead pursue that which is alive? That's Ephesians 2 right there. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience. We see that in the world, don't we? I mean, we see it presently in our world. We've seen it in our world just this past week. The world seeks after all these things. They chase them. Food, drink, clothing, comfort, protection. They chase after positions of prestige. They chase after notoriety. They chase after all these things, but not you. Here's what he says. Look at verse 33. Here's what he says to you. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. There there it is. Don't don't miss it. I'll, I'll read it again. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. 
So what's going to be added to you? All these things. That's why this verse is difficult to have as a standalone verse. It begins with the word but, and it includes a language that comes two verses before. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. The Gentiles were told, seek after all these things. That's what they do, but not you. But not you. No, you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That's not a misguided affection. Now we're talking about a holy affection, okay? It was Thomas Chalmers, the Scottish minister of the late 18th, early 19th centuries, who spoke of what he called uh, the expulsive power of a new affection. You see, it's not, it's not enough to not seek after the world. It's not enough to just not chase after the things of the world. It's not enough to force your desires and affections away from the world. The human heart is not built that way. We just aren't. We don't have a neutral position. Okay, we don't. We don't. When I was a kid, my, my dad brought a, it was a glorious, uh, canary yellow 1973 Datsun pickup truck. Try and find one of those. They're a rare commodity. Um, don't ask me how I know that. Uh, but anyway, um, he brought it up to our house and said, go, learn how to drive a stick shift. That was the game. And so it was great. I got in the thing, and you know what you could do? You could put it in neutral, and you could rev the engine, right? And I was 13, so what did it matter? But it didn't make a cool sound, because it was a 1973 Datsun, not a 1973 Chevy, right? Um, and so it made like a really, really pathetic sound. But it was loud, and that was enough for me, um, to my shame now. Um, it had neutral you know, you can do that in your car today. You can go out and put it in neutral and you can hit the gas pedal and what happens? I mean, you don't go anywhere. See, that's a, it's a fallacy of the human heart to believe that we can at some point be in neutral. You're not like that truck. You're not. It's not enough. There is no neutral in the life of believers. It's never enough to just not do something. Our hearts demand a direction for our affections. And so Jesus doesn't just tell them to stop pursuing worldly things. He doesn't. He tells them what to rightly pursue, what to rightly seek after. It's a holy affection, not for the world, but for the glory of God. And, and, and then he says this, and all these things will be added to you. Now, it's not that you will have everything that you desire. He doesn't say that. It's not even that you will always have everything to meet your every physical need. By the way, your life attests to that reality. So I'm not telling you anything new there. But you, if you rightly understand the reason for your very existence, the purpose for which God created you, you can begin to grasp that when he says all these things, he means all that you need to accomplish your purpose in this life. And your singular purpose, just like the birds of the air, just like the lilies of the field, is the glory of God. Now the question for us is, can we embrace that? Can you hold on to that? John Piper has a, has a short video you can watch uh, online on this one verse. And his explanation there is that what God is saying is that I will never ask from you that you glorify me in any way for which I will not supply you. I will never ask from you that you glorify me in any way for which I will not supply you. Why do the birds of the air exist? 
for, the, for God's glory. Why are the lilies of the field so beautiful? They're for God's glory. Why are you here? You see what Jesus has done here? You exist for no other reason than for the glory of the living God. That's what it means to seek first the kingdom of God. It means embracing the truth that we are for God's glory. And so we pursue that. We chase after that. We take the words of Christ seriously and we understand that the pursuit of the kingdom will often look a lot more like carrying a cross. You see, in Christ, God set the example for us. He did. His seeking first the kingdom didn't bring him comfort. It didn't bring convenience, at least not for him. It brought pain. It brought discomfort. It brought suffering. But, and this is key, it also brought life. And in keeping with our purpose, it brought God the glory. Remember, remember Jesus said this. He, he came to seek and to save the lost. He had a purpose. That was his purpose statement. And included in that, it was, oh, if you only remember the first part, it, it really sells Christ short because the second part says to give his life as a ransom for many. Giving his life as a ransom for many is what it meant for Jesus to seek first the kingdom of God. It meant going to the cross. It meant paying the debt for my sin. It meant being subjected to injustice. The life of our Savior was not easy. The cross was not easy. But even in that, God gave Jesus all these things. Just like the birds, just like the lilies, He gave Him everything that He needed in order to accomplish the task for which He was sent. In order to open the door of the kingdom uh, that we might go in. So is the cross about freedom from bondage? Yes. Is the cross about redemption from sin and death? Absolutely. Absolutely. But beyond that, even beyond that, the cross is about the glory of God. So why worry? <laughs> why be anxious about anything? Christ already died that, so that as a child of the living God, you might have it all. Everything that you need to accomplish your purpose. Everything for the glory of God. Let's hold on to that as a people. Let's embrace that. Let's live that. Our world is so desperate to see it. Everything it searches for, everything it fights for, is found in Christ. And we can show them that. So let's go to work. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, for your, for your heart for us, undeserving, unmerited. You have shown us grace upon grace, mercies that are new with each morning. How can we say anything but thank you? And how can we do anything other than seek you? God, I pray that our lives would reflect this. I pray that as we go from here, we will not be, we will not be ashamed, we will not be afraid, but that we will be yours. That we would be yours. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.